Well, hey everyone, it's great to have you with us this weekend. Uh, I've been very excited about the opportunity I have to share. If you're new at Cross Timbers, we're in a year-long study with a few breaks in between a series called 40 that's basically, uh, we're saying this, that it's believing that saves you, but it's following that sets you free. And that we are finding that in our lives, many of us, uh, we're going to heaven, but we're living in hell, and it's because we haven't learned how to follow. So we've been studying in the book of Exodus uh, this year. We've been talking about what does it mean to learn how to follow. One of the things we've said over and over again is there's no, there's no perfect followers. Nobody can be perfect, but we can all learn how to be better followers. And so when we last were in our series together, we talked the weekend before Easter about Passover, and we talked about this 10th plague of where God, where God was going to send this death angel and that the blood was going to protect God's people. And we showed how that was a foreshadowing prophetic event, if you will, of what was going to happen with Jesus. And I want to pick up the story today in Exodus chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, your smartphones, or whatever you're using, I want you to turn over to Exodus chapter 12, we're just going to focus on two verses today. Just two verses, but I, I want to read it to you in context. In Exodus chapter 12, look down at verse 31. We find ourselves in the place where the death angel has passed over. The Bible says that there's all these wailing happening as people are uh, waking up and discovering that the death angel has passed over their homes. And now the Bible says in verse 31 that during the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and he said, up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds if you, as you have said and go and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country for otherwise they said we will die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs, wrapped in clothing. Now, here it comes, verse 35. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. Wherever you're sitting this moment, say plundered. They plundered. The Egyptians, yes. Verse 37, the Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth. There, there was about 600,000 men on foot. Everybody say 600,000. 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Many other people went up with them, as well as large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. And when the dough they had brought from Egypt, with the dough they had brought from Egypt, they baked cakes of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. So God has been supernaturally at work. He's been working behind the scenes. We're going to find out in a moment that they've been in captivity for over 400 years. And if we had a long time today, I would talk about how it never happens as fast as you want it to happen. And some of you feel like, your deliverance has been, your lack of deliverance has been going on for 400 years, but God is at work, God comes, God does exactly what he wants to do in the moment he wants to do it, and 
he moves in the heart of not only the Egyptians, but he moves in the heart of the Israelites. And the moment that for generations they had been waiting for is finally here. And Pharaoh, as we just read, in, in panic finally says, everything you've asked for, everything you said that your God wanted, I'm going to give you, you leave. But there's this one interesting concept. There are really two interesting concepts. I'm just, just not sure I'm going to get to both of them today. But there's this interesting concept that we see when the Bible says that all of a sudden the Israelites, they go to the Egyptians and they say, hey, can we, can we have all your jewelry? Why don't you give us everything you value? Uh, and we need some clothes, by the way. So we want, we, we want like your best stuff, not, not your hand-me-downs. We want your best clothes, and we want all the jewelry you've got. And the people said, okay. And the Bible says that so the Israelites, they plundered the Egyptians. And I don't know if you've heard this story before, and uh, you just kind of ran over that part of it. One of the things I think it's important to know is this is three times that God has said through Moses the Egyptians are going to give you their stuff. Um, I know a part of the, the imagery here is, is total victory from God, that God is going to bring total victory to his people. But can you imagine being in conflict with someone over a long period of time and, and, and finally you getting your way, you, you getting what you're looking for, and then you're going, hey, by the way, there's one more thing I want. I want all your stuff. And it, what a supernatural moment that, that God brings not only deliverance, but he brings plunder. And so I've been thinking really for months about why did God allow the Israelites not only deliverance and all that we know is going to come, but, but why does the story begin with them experiencing the, the, the surplus, the plunder of the Lord and and I thought about Egyptian slaves or Israel, Israelites in slavery in, in Egypt. And I thought about what it would be like to live like in real lack. I mean, I'm talking about like not first world problems, like real lack. I mean, we think we have needs because we need another TV, you know, or we... we we, we need a steak instead of chicken. <laughs> That's first world problems. I'm talking about places I've been in the world, third world, where people are not sure where their next meal is coming from. And you take third world kind of living and, and, and you multiply it into captivity kind of living. Where, you, where you're wondering where your next meal is coming from. You don't even dare to dream about there being leftovers after a meal. You, you, you barely can dream about being free, about being free to choose your vocation, about when to, write, when to get up, when to go to bed, to have choices in your life. Rather on to think about choices and the resources to live in those choices. But the Israelites, like you and me, find themselves in what I think our heart longs for and one of the most dangerous places we live. It's the place where we have freedom and the resources to choose. That, that because God wants to teach 
you and I how to follow through the life of the Israelites, God puts the Israelites in the place that, quite honestly, the, the majority of us live where we have choices, and at some level, we have resources that allow us to make choices. Now, everybody look at me. I want you to hear me. We can always find somebody better off, and we can always find somebody worse off, right? We can say, well, I don't have freedom and resources like so-and-so, and the fact of the matter is you don't, but you have freedom and you have resources. Can we agree that to be true? And yet, what's interesting about this story is what the Israelites most longed for, they finally got And you see the precariousness, if you will, the danger of getting what your heart desires, finding yourself in that place. Well, what do you mean? Well, there's two stories that we'll study in detail in the months to come. But there's there's two little details in stories about these resources, this jewelry that was given to the Israelites that just popped up in my mind as I read these words. The first one is what many of you that are familiar with the story are thinking about. It's one choice that you can make with your resources and with your freedom. We find it in Exodus 32 when Moses has gone up on the mountain to receive a word from the Lord. And the Bible says that that. Moses was longing coming down, right? That that God wasn't operating on the timetable that they expected. Now, they've seen this over and over again in their lives, but they've never seen God not being on their timetable when they had freedom and resources. You with me, everybody with me so far? This is important because Exodus 32 says, They come to Aaron and they say, come make us gods who will go before us. And it's for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt. We don't know what happened to him. And so Aaron says, verse 2 of Exodus 32, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and they brought them to Aaron. Let's stop right there. Where did the earrings come from? They came from the Egyptians. You don't have 2.4 million people wandering in the wilderness and all of a sudden they start making jewelry. They, They had the jewelry that God had given them in plunder, right? They have the resource. They have the freedom. Verse 4 says, He took what they handed him and they made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool, Then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. See, the precariousness, the danger of being in the position that we're all in, where God has given us resources and freedom to choose, is that like the Israelites in Exodus 32, when God isn't operating in a way we want him to operate, there is a tendency to use those very resources and freedoms to medicate the pain in our lives of God not showing up, not 
performing in a way we want him to perform. And again, in historical context, the second God, little g God, that Jehovah God addressed in these ten plagues that we studied before Easter is the very God that they fashion out of these gold earrings to worship. Be careful what you ask for. You might get it. One author said, we're asking the wrong question. The question that we normally ask is, what golden calf are you dancing around? When the real question should be, what's deep in our hearts that makes us want to fashion a cow in the first place? But until we recognize the very real danger of us in our flesh being willing to use the very gifts that God has given us to help us feel better about ourselves, to fill holes that only God can truly fill, to feel enough. When we use what God has given us and we fashion it into a God of its own, when we find our identity in what God allows us to do, in what someone might or might not say, when we find our worth, when we get our sense of value from something other than God, we find ourselves in Exodus 32. And here's the thing. I know some of you are tired of hearing me say this, but it bears repeating. Like, you're not smart enough to beat this system. <laughs> I, don't, I don't care how many degrees you have. I don't care how street smart you are. You dance around a golden calf long enough and you'll miss the promised land because your heart will wither up and die. You look for purpose and meaning and value and worth and affirmation enough from this around you. And you'll find yourself dead in the dryness of the desert like these Israelites find themselves in Genesis or in Exodus 32. The room grows silent because this is why you find yourself in the financial situation you find yourself in today. I mean, let's just call it out. It's not an education issue. It's not a self-discipline issue. It's a this makes me feel something issue. 
the room grow silent because many of you, like me, fight the good fight to sleep at night. And when you can't sleep and the enemy begins to whisper, the whisper is, it's words of not being enough. It's woulda, coulda, shoulda moments. And if you feed that with things other than the character and the nature of God, you're going to find yourself at some point in Exodus 32 in the dryness of the desert, unable to go on. It's, it's one of the foundational tests of following. It's being born in a nation in a moment in time where we have options. It's, it's being allowed to live in a culture that gives no second thought to freedom and the resources to exercise those freedoms. And yet this is the place, I think the secret place where the Lord begins to test our heart. Can God be enough it's not what are you dancing around that's the low hanging fruit it's what's driving you to dance in the first place and that's one direction that the resources of the plunder of Egypt bring but there's another direction as well I don't know about you, I'm not even sure whether I would admit this about me, but man, I get bogged down in the second half of Exodus. Anybody read the second half of Exodus and you get all of these different instructions and the do's and the don'ts and here's how you build stuff and here's how you don't build stuff and it might, like if, if you're reading that stuff and that's bringing great life to your quiet time, God bless you and Tell me about it in heaven, but for me, it's kind of work to get through it. But there's one little section in the middle of all of these detailed instructions that have always been really interesting to me. Again, flip back to Exodus 25. Exodus chapter 25, God is giving specific instructions for building what we know as the Ark of the Covenant. If you've ever seen any of the Indiana Jones movies, you know about the Ark of the Covenant, right? And that was funny. But Exodus 25, it says this, beginning of verse 10, have them make a chest of Acadia wood. Everybody say Acadia wood. I don't know what that is, but it sounds cool. And two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Now look at this. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and outside. Make a gold molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to its four feet with two rings on one side, two rings on the other. Then make poles of Acadia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the side of the chest to carry it. The poles are to remain 
in the rings of this ark, they are not to be removed. Then put in the ark of the testimony, which I will give to you. And God gives these specific instructions for how to build this ark of the covenant, is, is the name we know of it. And the word, again, remember, in, in, in the Hebrew language, you, you can't underline or boldface or capitalize something. You just have to repeat it. What's the word that comes back over and over again when you read about the ark of the covenant? Gold. The outside is gold. The inside is gold. The molding is gold. The rings are gold. The, the ends of the Arcadia poles that go through the golden rings are made out of gold. And here's the question, where did the gold come from? It came from the melting down of the gold jewelry that had come from the Egyptians in the day that God allowed his people to plunder. You see where I'm going with this? Two freedoms, I mean, two groups of people with the exact same freedom, two groups of people with the exact amount of resources to operate in those freedoms. One chooses to medicate their need to be enough, their, their need <clears throat> to be satisfied by building a calf, and one uses those resources to build, look at me everybody, the place where we're going to read in the story, the very presence of God dwells. That I'm going to use my freedom given by God, by my resources, whether I feel like it's a lot or a little, by God, I'm going to use them to bring God glory. And from that day to this day, churches are filled with people celebrating the hope that comes in the presence of God. The life not only received, not only the life endured, but the life that lives on comes through the painful decision as a follower to fight the urge to find my identity in anything other than God alone and actually use what God has given me to see God glorified through my life. Finding myself in a place where it doesn't matter who gets the credit as long as God gets the glory finding myself in a place where there's nothing to prove and nothing to hide. Finding myself in a place where I am truly free of opinions and perceptions, of misunderstanding. I'm just using the freedom and resources God has given me to point people to him. And one dies in the desert and one lives on. And there's a little bit of the Israelites in every one of us. I believe the older I get, the more firmly I believe that whatever position 
God puts me in or doesn't put me in. Whatever resources he allows me to have or doesn't allow me to have. That God has placed them there at its core to teach me how to follow him. This is where I, the early place I get tested about following. But see, it's in following that I get set free. <laughs> Second thing I want to just show you quickly from this passage. I, I want to, from another passage, I want to come back to it later in this series. But it's, again, back in this Exodus 12 passage, I, I think there's this whole concept of plunder and taking the, load, the road less traveled and, and what happens in that and what brings life and what takes life. But I, I want you to see the, an, another little detail. It says that the Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth and there were about 600,000 men on foot beside women and children. And so I, I, I don't have time to go into the details of all of this. I'll tell you that I've kind of nerded out on the details of all of this over the last few months. And uh, just like, let me boil it down for you. They're talking about 24 million people walking out of Egypt okay so let's just say two million we got two million people walking out leaving Egypt when God says go I mean I think we just think about a little crowd of people you know but we're talking about two million people if they're 10 abreast if they're walking in 10 in in rows of 10 y'all with me it's 149 miles of people Two million people, a hundred plus miles long, walking out of Egypt. And I've been trying for months to picture this in my mind. And I was telling some of my friends on our team here a couple of months ago, they were, we were talking about an issue. And I said, you know, I've been, I've been thinking about this picture. And we, we were talking about, like, what does God call a leader? I mean, we know what, what the American definition of a leader is, right? They're confident, and they've got these personality gifts and skills, and they're get-stuff-done get kind of I mean, we have the stereotype of a leader, right? But, but what does God call a leader? And we were talking about this, talking about how could we help you begin to see yourself maybe in a biblical way instead of an American culture way. And I said, man, I've been thinking about this passage, and I'm— I've been thinking about like the guys who are halfway back in the pack. You know, they're 50 miles back. Let's just say they're 50 miles back. And if I were to walk up to one of them, my guess would be, like most of you, if they said, hey, man, who's the leader here? Who would they all say? Well, that's Moses about 50 miles up. He's the one who threw the stick on the ground and became a, snake and he picked up was a sticky and he's the one he's he's leading us maybe someone say well it's Moses and Aaron because Aaron's he's eloquent of speech you know and he's giving these great impassioned speeches and but none of them would say well but I'm a leader it would be like half of you check out if I begin to talk about your potential as a leader because you've so Americanized leadership that when I say 
a leader, you instantly think, well, that's for somebody else. And I want to ask you what I would ask that guy in the line. Well, look behind you. There's 50 miles of people behind you. You may not be at the front of the line, but you're leading someone. And again, I want to develop this topic over time. But but I just want to say to you this day, and this is the reason, by the way, I asked to teach this weekend via video when I'm out of town. There's, There's many capable teachers, but I'm so impassioned about this concept of the resources and the and the freedom and how we use them and because I've lived I, I live so much of the pain of that in my own frailty and humanity but but it's because I, I I want in the depth of my being for you to begin to consider that there is leadership potential within you because you carry the presence of Christ in your life and that you have influence and that there are people that you can't even see behind you, 30 miles behind you, that within you is the potential to lead them into the promised land. And that we are committed, like heart committed. Not only as I talked a couple of weeks ago about helping you find spiritual family, but to release you into your destiny as a leader in the marketplace, in your neighborhood, in your, in your kids' little league program, that you might see yourself <coughs> as one who God has entrusted with the gift of leadership. And that we want to fan that flame, help you begin to understand it, and then fan that flame and help you discover it and develop it and then release you out into the world in which you live. Not Look at me, everybody, not simply believing that you can change the world, but that you can change your world because Christ in you is the hope of glory. And that God is at work in places that you don't even think he's at work. And that God is ready and willing to use the places where you have circle of influence to make him known to people. So that's my heart for us today. Is that we might see in this simple story, I promised you a couple of weeks ago, I promised you before the year's over with, we're going to get to the parting of the Red Sea. But there's two or three. I've got a couple of more of these, just these pieces that I can't get away from that I think are so relevant for our lives. And so I don't know where you find yourself today. I don't, I don't know if you find yourself dancing around a golden calf and this is your moment to stop and go, you know what? I'm, I'm, like I'm not an exception to the rule. That will lead to death and that God, you ask God to show you ways to begin to sense your worth through him that would release you to carry the presence of God, or whether you find yourself going, huh, I never thought about being a leader. What would that look like for me? Wherever that is, I'm just going to pray that the Lord will take you out of the back doors of our three campuses and in your cars and back into your 
world that you would begin to consider and let the Lord speak to you. Let's pray together. Lord, I, I don't know what the next step is for anyone today, but you do. <laughs> you know who is sick and tired of being sick and tired by using the very gifts you've given them to try to find the worth that only you can promise. And they're tired of dancing. And I would pray, Father, that in this moment, this would be the moment that there would be a, a release of that. It's scary to let it go, isn't it? Because if you don't protect you, who's going to protect you? If you don't validate you, who's going to validate you? And the Lord's saying, I'll do it. Just give it to me. <laughs> and then, I, Lord, I pray for the leadership potential in every room that I'm speaking to right now. I thank you that you're called for leadership, it's not always a Moses or Aaron call. Sometimes it's like 50 miles back in the pack call, but it's a valid call. <laughs> and I pray that you would open our eyes to the places of influence that we have, not simply to change the world, but to change our world, the little world you've given us to exist in. And I pray that, that if someone might walk up to us and say, who's the leader, that we might be able to say in humility, that's me. <laughs> That's my call. That's my responsibility. That's my giftedness. And Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church family to learn how to help people better recognize and be equipped and then released into that destiny for them as leaders. Thank you for the leaders you're building here, Lord. I thank you for a vision of 10,000 spirit-filled, baptized believers walking in freedom, committed to meeting the needs of poor and broken, both both locally and around the world, because it's really a vision for 10,000 leaders. And I pray, Father, that you'd, uh, you'd let us begin to realize that. We just give honor and glory to you for teaching us these truths about following you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.